Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Hello? Hello, Coraline. Want to hear my new song? My father can't play piano. No need to. This piano plays me. Ah. but she said to tell you the food's ready. Mmm, who's starving? Raise your hand. Oh! <laughs> In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 63, Coraline. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Welcome to the other podcast you listen to. Obviously, it goes without saying that cases of COVID-19 are actually on the up here in the UK right now. So If you are listening, uh, please continue to stay safe, uh, wear a mask, protect your loved ones. And while the grass wasn't greener on the other side for Coraline, let's hope that ours is as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Because we are living in really, really weird times. As I said, welcome to the podcast. It's always so lovely to have you here with me. And especially this week, uh, talking about Coraline, because... Obviously, I'm going to go into Coraline in some detail, but if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you will know how much I love animation and uh, also how much I love stop motion animation and also how much I love Laika. So (laughs) this really is uh, a really, really exciting episode for me. Um, But before I start, just to talk on the previous episode, which was on Scooby-Doo. And Scooby-Doo was never going to be a massive winner on the podcast downloads Um, because it's quite a polarising topic. I think a lot of people, there are a lot of people out there who aren't keen on Scooby-Doo, the movie, uh, don't think it's very good. I mean, I think Scooby-Doo is pretty fun. But, um, and to be honest, as much as I love popular episodes, because all podcasters love their episodes to be popular, I am actually really delighted with the reception to Scooby-Doo. Even though I did get asked if I was drunk during the recording um and I think that was just because I was just having a really good time uh I am actually not really uh a drinker um I'm one of these I'll drink on special occasions kind of people um I'm not really a massive drinker um and I've never really been the sort of person who needs alcohol to have a good time so anytime it sounds on this podcast like I am 
It is genuinely just my natural ability to get high on life. And obviously, it was also really fun to do an episode with Jess as well. And and just her natural comedic timing on that episode was just flawless. Uh, she is not with me right now. I have had to shut her out. Um, but I have scheduled Josie and the Pussycats in and she will come back for that episode because I can't do an episode on Josie and the Pussycats without Jess because uh, she was very excited when I mentioned Josie and the Pussycats in the Scooby-Doo episode. So yeah, that will definitely be happening next year for sure. So it was January was the last time I covered a Leica movie and that was obviously Kubo and the Two Strings and I've wanted to do Coraline for so long, I can't tell you. Um, it's genuinely one of my favourite animated movies. And I held off to do Coraline to October for a reason. Because like most podcasts, I wanted to cover kind of more spooky themed movies because obviously October is the spookiest month. But I also wanted to do something a bit different to everyone else. And Scooby-Doo kind of fitted in quite naturally at the start of the month, even though that was like a rescheduled episode. And Coraline seemed to be the perfect follow-up to Scooby-Doo because it blends uh, this beautiful animation, but also genuine horror, like nothing else. So let's have a listen to the trailer for Coraline. (laughs) Coraline Jones always dreamed of finding a better world. exciting than this uh-huh. but never did she imagine that she'd discover it in her own home a parallel place we've been waiting for you Coraline where parents are always fun I love your garden can't believe you did this and everything is so good It just can't be real. Mom? You're just in time for supper, dear. You're not my mother. My mother doesn't have... Buttons? Do you like them? I'm your other mother, silly. You probably think this world is a dream come true. My name! But you're wrong. You do like it here, don't you, Coraline? You could stay here forever. There's one tiny little thing we need to do. Black is traditional. (gasps) She's got this whole world where everything's better, but it's all a trap. You may come out when you've learned to be a loving daughter. From Henry Selick, the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas, comes a world of extraordinary imagination. Spooky secrets. Who are you? You're in terrible danger, girl. And daring discoveries. I still have to find my parents. To set them free. This year, when adventure comes knocking. (laughs) There are some doors that should never be opened. Written for the screen and directed by Henry Selleck. Presented in Real D3D. Coraline Jones moves to a new home where she feels bored and alone. She's given a doll that looks remarkably like her and finds a bricked up passage in the wall. But during the night it opens up. She discovers a world that seems to be an alternate version of her life. With only one slight difference. Everything is better. Her other mother and other father are loving, giving and the world is bright and colourful. However, everyone in the other world has buttons for eyes. Coraline's other mother invites her to stay forever if she lets her sew buttons onto her eyes. But Coraline begins to realise that this alternate universe is just a trick to lure her into the beldam's web. The cast for this movie, uh, we have Dakota Fanning as Coraline Jones, Terry Hatcher as Mel Jones and the beldam and the other mother, Jennifer Saunders as April Spink, Dawn French as Miriam Forcible, Keith David as The Cat, John Hodgman as Charlie Jones, Robert Bailey Jr. as YB Lovett, and Ian McShane as Sergei Bobinski. The movie was written by Henry Selick, 
It was based on the novella Coraline by Neil Gaiman and it was directed by Henry Selick. So I went into a little bit about the story of Laika back on Kubo and the True Strings. So I'm going to go a little bit on the story of Laika because it is a really, really fascinating story. So the Laika story starts with a guy called Will Vinton. He was the man who trademarked the term claymation and he developed his own animation studio, which was called Will Vinton Studios. And that was in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Most famously, they worked on the Wizard of Oz sequel, Return to Oz. And that was nominated for an Oscar for special effects. They also worked on the famous California Raisins series of ads. At the end of the 90s, Will Vinton Studios had worked on several feature-length movies, but mainly animated short movies. Wanting to venture into more feature-length animated features, they looked to entice investors. One such investor was Nike owner Phil Knight, who invested in the struggling business in 1998. And if you're wondering, Nike... The same Nike, yes, it is the same Nike. So by 2002, Phil Knight became the majority shareholder in Will Vinton Studios and Will Vinton, unable to secure further funding, was unfortunately dismissed from his own studio. He actually ended up suing for ownership of the name and for damages. In 2005, the studio was renamed Leica after the first dog sent into space. Henry Selick, who is obviously the director of Coraline, uh, and I obviously mentioned him back in the Stardust episode as well, episode 25. He joined Laika as supervising director. Obviously, he was most well known at the time for being the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, It is not Tim Burton who directed that movie, even though so many people still think that. Um, He also directed James and the Giant Peach. So Phil Knight now owns Laika. And being one of the richest men in the world can afford to literally pump money into this studio. His son, Travis, was originally hired as an intern straight out of college. And then as an animator for Will Vinton Studios, he would eventually become president and CEO of Laika, as well as director and producer of Kubo and the Two Strings. But he actually starts out as the lead animator on Coraline. Laika, as an entity in its own right, first came to prominence after being contracted out to do work on the 2005 movie Corpse Bride alongside Tim Burton's production company. Laika's first movie that they would actually make themselves was obviously Coraline, uh, based on the Neil Gaiman novella, which was published in 2002. Gaiman started writing Coraline in 1990, and the name Coraline, ironically, came from Gaiman misspelling the name of the character, which was originally Caroline. Uh, The novella would go on to win the 2003 Hugo Award for Best Novella, the 2003 Nebula Award for Best Novella, and the 2002 Bram Stoker Award for Best Work for Young Readers. This was three years after the publication of Stardust, which, as I mentioned, I have featured on this podcast. I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman's work in general. Um, I actually have a framed, signed copy of one of his poems that still needs to go up in my house. Uh, Neil Gaiman has featured on this podcast a few times, uh, obviously in Stardust, in Princess Mononoke, which he wrote the English dub for, and now again for Coraline. It's probably not going to be the last time I feature Neil Gaiman. Henry Selick actually met with Neil Gaiman before Coraline, the novella, was finished. The Nightmare Before Christmas had come out in 1993 and was a huge hit for Disney through their Touchstone Pictures label. And as I've mentioned before, that's the label they used for stuff that was a bit more grown up than their usual Disney fare. The Nightmare Before Christmas is still considered a Halloween staple and also a Christmas staple too because it's generally seen as both a Halloween and a Christmas movie and it turned out Neil Gaiman was a huge fan of The Nightmare Before Christmas and he invited Henry Selick to adapt Coraline but despite the team-up of Selick and Gaiman no studio was interested in making Coraline at first. Excuses given included Stop motion is not a viable filmmaking medium. Everyone knows you can't have an animated film with a female protagonist unless she's a princess or a fairy, of course. No boy's going to see a film with a girl's name in the title. No girls will see it either. The damn thing's too scary. Teens aren't interested in animation. Adults see animation as a babysitter. They don't want their kids to be challenged. Hmm. So... They finally approached Focus Features, who at the time had a one-picture deal with a tiny Oregon startup studio called Leica. And obviously Coraline was seen as a huge risk, but Leica having the financial backing of literal billionaire Phil Knight meant that it was a risk that they were prepared to take. 
Laika had big dreams, but the production on Coraline was arduous, not only because it was stop motion, which came with its own difficulties, but Laika were also filming Coraline in 3D at the same time, and they had to prove they could achieve it. For all the financial backing in the world is nothing without a credible hit movie to show potential future studio partners. Rather than Neil Gaiman adapting his own novella for the screen, Henry Selick, who had taken the idea to produce a Bill Mechanic, was given Neil Gaiman's blessing to adapt the novella into a screenplay. Selick was the one who introduced the character of YB, who's not present in the novella, to have another character who Coraline can talk to and the audience can relate to. But interestingly, for the first two years, it was going to be a live action movie. They'd even met with Michelle Pfeiffer for the role of the other mother, or the mothers, so to speak. She just wasn't keen on having buttons for eyes, apparently. Um, The movie languished for a few years, um, and by that point, Selick just believed Coraline would never happen. He had insisted on using stop-motion animation for the movie, and as luck would have it, Laika asked Selick to direct a short movie they were working on called Moon Girl. Selick agreed on the basis he could essentially bring Coraline with him. Laika at the time were a studio working on both stop-motion and CGI formats, Their originally planned second movie was a CGI movie called Jack and Ben's Animated Adventure. That was cancelled in 2008 and they actually ended up laying off a load of staff before Coraline was even released. Selick knew stop motion was the only visual format appropriate for Coraline. A suggestion for half CGI and half stop motion was rejected. Bill Mechanic had to be convinced on the stop motion. As if The Nightmare Before Christmas is not proof enough. Once Moon Girl was complete, Selick then wanted to move on to Coraline, but it was thought to be too dark by one of the executives at Laika. It was Selick's working relationship with Travis Knight, who'd worked on Moon Girl as an animator, which was key to get Coraline made, because Travis gave Henry Selick a connection to his father, the big boss Phil Knight. Selick's passion for Coraline and several rewrites later convinced Phil Knight of the project and the green light was given on Coraline. Basically, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that just basically goes for any industry ever in the world. Henry Selick wanted Coraline to look unlike any other animated movie that existed at the time. He discovered the work of Japanese illustrator Tadahiro Uesugi and invited him to become Coraline's concept artist. It was Uesugi that influenced the colour palette of the muted monotone colours for the real world and a more colourful other world, similar to that in The Wizard of Oz. Uesugi was only meant to work on Coraline for a few weeks, but ended up committing over a year to the project, designing sets, backgrounds and basic images. He was essentially told to ignore all of Neil Gaiman's illustrations in the novella and instead give Coraline a design that would never have been before seen. I mentioned in Kubo and the Two Strings the sheer scale of the work Laika could do. Basically, everything they did for Kubo and the Two Strings was tenfold for Coraline. Everything that you see on screen was made for the film. Uh, And I mean everything. So all of the sets, all of the backdrops, everything was pretty much handmade or 3D printed. And I'm going to come to 3D printing in a little bit. So there were three Victorian mansions, a 42-foot apple orchard and a model set of Ashland, Oregon. Coraline's entire world was housed in a 140,000 square foot warehouse in Hillsborough, Oregon, with 50 individual lots and almost 150 sets. Two to six seconds of footage was filmed each week by a team of 35 animators working at any one time. But Coraline was also being shot in 3D. So this was additionally achieved by shooting each frame from two slightly apart camera positions. This was actually also inspired by The Wizard of Oz, where items in the real world kind of felt crushed, whereas the move into the other world, items were purposely spaced apart to make the other world feel bigger and really emphasise the 3D. Very much similar to The Wizard of Oz, where at the start it's all black and white, and then as soon as you get to Oz, it's all colour, and it just looks and feels completely different. Principal photography on Coraline took 18 months, and the finished film took over four years to complete. The most complex set was the Fantastic Garden, which included hundreds of handmade flowers and plants, most of which had their own individual light sources, and they also had to be made to move or grow as Coraline entered the garden. Each single Coraline puppet was nine and a half inches tall, 
and 28 of them were made by a team of 10 people who took three to four months to make each puppet. She had 6,300 face replacements with different expressions and a total of 15,000 replacement faces were printed using 3D printers. And interestingly, Leica was the first company to use 3D printed replacement faces in a feature length movie. So these 3D printed faces were hand sanded and hand painted for all of the characters. Coraline also herself had 42 different wigs, all coloured, a special blend of three colours, and they were actually styled by everyday hair products that you can just buy in your local store. Over 70 character fabricators, puppet wranglers, armaturists, riggers, mould makers, character painters, costume designers and fabricators, and hair and wig fabricators worked on Coraline. This was an absolutely huge achievement for a company's first feature. Like, it's mind-blowing. I mentioned back on Kuro and the Two Strings how mind-blowing it was that they achieved that. And this was seven years before Kubo. And just the sheer scale of this movie is just incredible to me. Um, and if Coraline and the other characters were small, being only nine and a half inches tall, the mice were something else. And the jumping mouse circus had as many as 51 choreographed mice on screen. And each had to be replaced with a new mouse 12 times for every second of screen time. And the sizes of the mice, 650 mice, uh, ranged in scale from 100% to 222%. It's just, <laughs> oh, I, love, I love covering Leica movies, genuinely, because every single time I cover something from Leica, it just, it's just incredible how they do stuff like this. Um, I'm not even finished. Each of the costumes were knitted by hand by a lady called Althea Chrome. She specialises in miniature knitting or micro knitting, as it's known. She was contacted by Cher Coleman and Georgina Hayes of Leica's costuming department. Clothing like jumpers and stockings, which measured a few inches in height, were knitted with tiny needles at 28 stitches per inch, with only a replica of Coraline's body for reference, even though the stockings that she knitted were ultimately never used for filming. She ended up knitting 14 star sweaters out of polyester and six pairs of striped gloves out of silk, which fitted on the various versions of Coraline's tiny, tiny hands. And thousands of these tiny hands were made, which were only a couple of centimetres tall, if that. Coraline's famous yellow raincoat, I actually have one, very similar, in style and colour, had to be weighted down with wires and weights, so it would look realistic on screen. Everything to do with this movie is just thought out and planned to like the nth degree. Coraline was originally conceived as a musical, which is ironic because I'm going to come to the actual musical a little bit later. Uh, ten songs were originally written by They Might Be Giants. The other father's singing voice is John Linnell, one of the members of They Might Be Giants. These songs were cut because Henry Selick eventually felt like the characters bursting into song would disrupt the tone of the movie. Because as much as I love a musical, and I really, really love a musical, I think he made a really good call on that. The film's score was by French composer Bruno Coulet and was performed by the Hungarian Symphony Orchestra and featured choral pieces sung by the Children's Choir of Nice. And if you're wondering what the lyrics were to that darkly melancholic music, they are nonsense words. <laughs> there's, there's nothing about that that makes any sense. And in another ironic nod, the lead soloist of that choir is also called Coraline. Her name is Coraline Tassie, uh, which is incredible because a name like Coraline is not really a very popular name. Like I said, it was originally a spelling mistake. So the score for Coraline would actually go on to win the 2009 Annie Award for best score for an animated feature. The song performed by the other father is wonderfully foreshadowing too. Um, it was played at the start of this episode, but if you missed it, these are the lyrics. Making up a song about Coraline. She's a peach, she's a doll, she's a pal of mine. She's as cute as a button in the eyes of everyone who ever laid their eyes on Coraline. When she comes around exploring, mom and I will never ever make it boring. Our eyes will be on Coraline. So yeah, <laughs> I mean that basically is just a complete warning about this entire other world. Um, I mentioned earlier the links to The Wizard of Oz, which is one of those movies that is such a cultural icon 
that I think most modern fantasy movies are based on it in one way or another. But Coraline also borrows quite heavily from Alice in Wonderland. There are several similarities between Alice in Wonderland and Coraline, including a whole to a fantasy version of the world, a young girl who feels different to everyone around her, and the fantasy world being brighter, more visually pleasing, a female villain, uh, a trial to save herself, and of course, a cat. The cat in Coraline is a lot more helpful than the Cheshire cat, has to be said, and while Alice's adventures were clearly a dream, Coraline's other world is kind of left ambiguous, but the snow on her parents' clothing is a good indication that it was real. While Alice in Wonderland thrives on the nonsensical and childlike wonder, Coraline is more about familial relationships between parents and children. It brings to mind an interesting conversation uh, that I had recently with friends of the podcast, Black Case Diaries, who incidentally are actually covering The Nightmare Before Christmas. So make sure you check out that episode. But we actually ended up DMing each other about Coraline. And she came up with a great theory about Coraline and how it relates to real-life parenting, especially when couples split up and remarry. And in that Coraline's parents that she lives with are essentially seen as ever so slightly neglectful of Coraline's emotional and physical needs. And when the other parent, um, an other mother, or a step-parent, or a parent who no longer lives with the child due to remarriage, it is almost like an other world that kind of comes into the equation. And another parent who lavishes love and affection, and it can skew a child's emotional desires over to the parent who is lavishing that love and affection and kind of showering them with gifts, as the other mother does. And that's for the express purpose, not in every circumstance when you've got split parents, um, but certainly in some circumstances to essentially isolate that child from the parent and perhaps get that child to come and live with the other parent instead. I kind of felt like I wanted to mention it and I did get permission to mention it because it is a really great theory and kind of have to give all the credit to Black Case Diaries for that theory. And they are a wonderful podcast. They've covered Leica before, um, as well as loads and loads of other things. So please go and check them out for more excellence like that. Because genuinely, I did not even think of that kind of link to having multiple family units and how that might make a child feel. There's also a really great reference that I just wanted to highlight in the movie Coraline uh, to the Ramft brothers. Uh, they are Joe and Jerome Ramft. And the removals company is called Ramped Removals. Each of the characters has a name tag. One's called Joe and one's called Jerome. And Joe Ramped, uh, I mentioned him quite a bit actually in the episode that I did in Toy Story. He sadly passed away in 2005. He actually co-wrote Toy Story and he worked for both Disney and Pixar over the years. And so it was really, really nice to see him referenced along with his brother Jerome. Kind of going back to the other mother. Uh, or the Beldum, to give her her real, real name. Uh, so the Beldum was actually inspired by a folk tale by Lucy Clifford in 1882 called The New Mother, later called The Pear Drum. Neil Gaiman has actually confirmed that this was the inspiration for the story in Coraline, but the story of The New Mother goes a little differently. Um, and I just wanted to kind of read out a synopsis for it because it's really, really interesting. So it's basically the story of two well-behaved sisters. Their names are Blue Eyes and Turkey. They live with their mother and their baby sibling in the forest while their father is far away at sea. One day, the children meet a strange girl who tells them that she has a tiny man and woman in a compartment on her guitar and will only show them to naughty children. The children return home and do their best to be naughty despite their love for their mother. So the mother, despondent, tells the children that if they don't behave she will have to go away with the baby and be replaced by a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. When the children next meet the girl, she tells them they haven't been nearly naughty enough and suggests ways for them to be more naughty. This cycle repeats three times, at the end of which the girl tells the children they will never be naughty enough to see the little people and that their mother and baby have gone away to be with their father and that they will never return and that the new mother is coming and disappears. At this point, the children's mother and the baby have also left. The children do not believe the girl and clean up the house and await their mother's return. 
The new mother shows up, but the children try not to let her in. They see that she has a glass eye and a wooden tail. The children flee into the woods and live on berries. Their real mother never returns and the new mother lives in the house instead. So, yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, obviously, in Coraline, the other mother does win. Um, but it's a really frightening folktale. It does kind of make you question, obviously, children can be quite susceptible to being told certain things and believing certain things and doing certain things, especially when older children or adults tell them to do them. And that's kind of, I think, one of the main reasons that the horror is so frightening in Coraline. But I want to talk about that a little bit later because I have a bit of a theory uh, about the horror in Coraline. Because the beldam, uh, the word beldam, means witch or it also means old woman or malicious old woman. And from the first victim's language, so the little boy who's the first victim, we can deduce that the beldam has been luring children for hundreds of years at the very least. Insect motifs are all over Coraline, from the bugs Coraline squashes in her bathroom, to the mantis tractor and also the mantis picture frame, to the beldam herself transforming into a spider and catching Coraline in her web in order to feed on her soul. She essentially feeds Coraline a excuse the pun, web of lies and deception about the other world being fun, safe and ideal. And like a spider, uses thread to entice Coraline by making a miniature doll version of her to spy on her. Laika as a studio has never been afraid to embrace the weird, kooky, horror-based elements of their stories. They've never felt like a studio restricted by family-friendly aesthetics like Disney. But Coraline leans into horror unlike any other animated feature I've ever seen. It's scary, like genuinely scary, more so for adults than for children. And I think that's because adults understand the horror of a stranger pretending to be a friend so that a child will be enticed by them. Um, the other mother is kind of the epitome of the bad guy, you know, the perfect predator of children, the, the stranger in the street that we're told not to go near, the guy who pulls up in a van outside a school, you know, all of these really scary scenarios that we tell children, run away from these people, don't talk to strangers. The other mother is that sort of stranger who pretends to be kind, pretends to be nice, gives lovely things, shows love, all of that sort of stuff, purely to entice a child. And that's why I think Coraline affects more adults than it does children. I think it is scary for children. And I think children do need to be scared. And I think children do need to understand what's scary and what's not. But I think for adults more so, um, it kind of brings this new level of terror that a child can so easily be taken and so easily be entranced by a person who pretends to be someone that they're not. And that is the reason why I think Coraline works so much as a horror movie, because it's not horror in the traditional sense of horror. There's no blood, there's no guts, there's no gore. There's no real sense of any kind of foreboding danger because it's essentially a family movie. It's never going to show anything bad happening to Coraline. Coraline is always going to win in the end. But that feeling of terror, that feeling of not being able to do anything for a child who is being enticed by a predator is kind of the root level of terror. Right, so it's time for a little segment that I like to do called the obligatory Chiani reference. And this is a part of my podcast where for a year, longer than a year, every single episode I have tried to link the movie that I'm featuring to Keanu Reeves. Um, and sometimes it's incredibly tedious and sometimes it's incredibly easy. Uh, for example, an episode on John Wick, oh, super easy to link to Keanu. Uh, an episode on Coraline, uh... I mean, it wasn't particularly difficult, but it is a little bit tenuous. So Henry Selick's next stop motion movie is with Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. Uh, it's called Wendell and Wilde. It's due to premiere on Netflix next year. Uh, Key and Peele famously made a movie called Keanu, which actually stars Keanu Reeves voicing Keanu the kitten. So, I mean, I mean it's a tenuous link, but... I kind of feel like it works. There is no other way, really, for me to link Keanu to Coraline, unless it is his favourite animated movie. I'm pretty certain it is, because I kind of feel like Keanu Reeves would get this movie. 
So Coraline premiered on the 5th of February 2009 and it released in the US the following day. It debuted at number three at the US box office and that was behind He's Just Not That Into You, which was released the same week and the Liam Neeson movie Taken. Coraline was made for $60 million and it ended up making $124.6 million worldwide. As I said, it was Laika's first feature-length animated movie and it's also, by a long shot, their most successful as well. It was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, as well as the BAFTA for Best Animated Feature and the Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature. It lost all three to Pixar's Up, and obviously Up came out in the same year. Up was massive. It did, however, win the BAFTA Children's Award for Best Feature Film. I mentioned a musical, and four months after the movie Coraline premiered, a musical premiered off-Broadway based on Neil Gaiman's novella. The character of Coraline was played by a 55-year-old actor named Jane Houdichel. Uh, so the musical was actually commissioned in 2004. So it had been in production for five years. So it's not really fair to call it a sequel. It's more of a sort of alternative spin-off of the novella that Coraline is based on. It's safe to say, though, that critically, the musical wasn't as revered as the movie because critics loved Coraline. Uh, it currently sits at 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, with critics praising its visuals, risk-taking, story, characters, and dark, twisted fantasy. And that's purely down to Laika, because Laika want to tell these stories. They want to broaden the minds of everyone, young and old, with the stories they tell. You know, whether they're macabre, dark and gothic, or melancholy and beautiful, they're one of very few animation studios who are consistently pushing the boundaries of what to expect out of animation. It's really sad to me that each release seems to yield fewer and fewer commercial success, with their most recent movie, Missing Link, only returning $26.2 million from its $102 million budget. Luckily, as I've said, Laika is not short of financial assistance, but it's a studio that we need to invest in and trust, the same way that we trust Pixar again and again. And to me, Pixar seem to have lost their way ever so slightly in recent years. Pixar have this tendency to rely too much on sequels. We need Laika. We need a company that is willing to take on these original stories. We need a plucky little studio with big ambitions. We need their imagination and their drive and their passion for creating these imaginative worlds and beautiful advances in animation technology. And that started with Coraline, which is amazing. Right, each episode I ask on social media uh, for comments of what people think about the movies that I'm featuring. And obviously, a lot of positive thoughts for Coraline. So firstly, we'll go to Twitter. We have our regular contributor, Andy, at Geek Salad Radio. He said, a film that shows how much Henry Selick has a lot more creative input into Nightmare Before Christmas than he was given credit for. A great take on the Neil Gaiman story and gave my son nightmares for two straight weeks and I told you so looks from my wife. At Woman's One said, I absolutely love, love, love this movie. I can watch it a million times and probably already have. Going to put it on right now. At SYIMS Podcast said, I think it's the best of Laika's faultless catalogue and a brilliant Neil Gaiman adaptation. It's an awesomely creepy tale full of glorious stop motion. I love the twisted fairy tale storyline, the vibrant colour of the other side and a superb voice cast, especially Keith David. At Coolness Pod Ryan said, Part of me wishes it remained a musical. It would be difficult to master the tone with songs, but I enjoyed the brief John Linnell piano moment so much that it feels to me like a risk worth taking. All that said, it's a fantastic film. At Holmes Movies Pod said, One of Laika's finest films. The animation is flawless and the vocal performances are fantastic. At BLC Agnew said, In the Venn diagram of good spooky movies for kids and legit great horror films, Coraline is not only in the overlap, it's one of the best recent examples of either. And, not to drop hot takes, the director Henry Selick's best film. A genuine polish on an already delightful Neil Gaiman story with what's become Laika Animation's signature mix of creepy and playful. Coraline is a treat both to watch on its own and to introduce to young audiences who have a budding thirst for horror. 
at Russ Loves Movies said, It's that rare film where the 3D felt effectively used by the film. When the tunnel first stretched out in front of Coraline, it was marvellous. At So Wizard Podcast said, This is one of the best family movies of the century. It's an absolute masterpiece. At Callum the Film Guy said, Coraline is one of my all-time favourite films. I love how it blends fantasy and horror in with its narrative and visual look to tell a dark, creative tale on being careful what you wish for. Soundtrack is brilliant and its creepy but mature edge makes it oddly accessible. At Kirsty Bennett 8 said, This movie really creeped me out. I have watched it only once and I'm never planning to watch it again. At SA Hollywood said, It's one of my most watched movies. There's a lot crammed into the story and it is very spooky. Moving over to Instagram at FWMPod said, I remember being so amazed by this film. I was working in a video store, RIP, when it came out and I was the first person to rent it and was quick to recommend it to anyone who would listen. At Book of Lies podcast said, OMG, we love Coraline Jones and the other mother. There was none on Facebook, but thank you so much to everyone who commented on Coraline. Uh, obviously, I'm delighted <laughs> that people love Coraline. I kind of feel like we're conditioned from children to prefer fantasy worlds, bright colours, fun environments and happiness. But the real world isn't like that. And the other mother preys on that vulnerability that we all have of preferring love, warmth and fun over hardship, sadness and loneliness. And it's that realisation that we'd probably fall for this world as well as the fact that our children would probably fall for this world, that creates the genuine horror of Coraline. Our lives may be imperfect and sometimes scary, but that's what makes them real. And that's what makes them ours. And that's what makes them worth fighting for. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Coraline. If you have enjoyed this episode or any episode that I've put out, If you could take a moment to rate and review on something like Apple Podcasts, that would be completely amazing. I would love you forever if you would do that. And a massive thank you to people who have recently given me some wonderful five-star ratings and reviews. It genuinely is the best way to show that you love what a podcast does. It's completely free and it's literally two minutes of your time. Uh, The other thing you can do if you do want to help this podcast grow is to tell someone about it. That would be awesome. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your other mother, if you must. (laughs) I don't think I get many downloads from the other world. Uh, I've not checked. But um, yeah, if the other mother wants to listen, she's more than welcome. Just, you know, don't eat my soul. If you liked this episode on Coraline, I like to try and recommend other episodes that I've done that you might also like. So I'm going to suggest episode six, Pleasantville, which might seem a little bit weird uh, as a suggestion uh, because ultimately it is a very, very different story. But it's two worlds coming together. It's bringing colour into a black and white world. And it's just a really great story. Um, So yeah, it is a bit of an out there suggestion. But I would highly recommend Pleasantville anyway. Uh, Episode 25, Stardust, because Neil Gaiman. Episode 27, After Christmas. Um, And that's mainly because it doesn't get as much love as it deserves. And technically it is a Christmas movie, so it's not really the sort of movie that you might want to watch right now. And it is CGI, but it is also an Aardman movie. And I do plan to cover some more Aardman in the near future. Uh, episode 29, obviously Kubo and the Two Strings because it's just simply a wonderful, breathtaking movie. It's obviously by Laika. And again, it's a movie that does not get the love it deserves. It really struggled commercially and it did not deserve to do so. It is beautiful. Please, 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 if you love Coraline, please Go and see Kubo and the Two Strings. It is different to Coraline. It's not a horror movie uh, by any stretch. It is more melancholy, but it's so beautiful. It's set in feudal Japan. It's just one of the most beautiful things you will ever see in your life. Please go and watch it. Um, And episode 47, Princess Mononoke. And and it's for Neil Gaiman's excellent English dub. And I'm not going to go into the whole subs v dubs thing because I mentioned that in Princess Mononoke. And I've mentioned that when I've tackled other Studio Ghibli movies because I've also done 
Spirited Away, which actually, thinking of it, Spirited Away would be a great companion piece for Coraline. Um, so yeah, episode, <laughs> I'm going to check. One second. What episode number is uh, Spirited Away? I don't actually have it to hand. Uh, this is off the cuff. I have not planned this. Episode 35. So episode 47, Princess Mononoke, but also episode 35, Spirited Away, because that is, again, very much very similar to Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. Uh, a young girl gets transported to a fantasy land. Check out Spirited Away if you like Coraline. And also Princess Mononoke, because Neil Gaiman, he really wrote a very good English dub for that movie. Give me feedback on my episode recommendations, especially the ones that are a bit off the cuff and not planned that just pop into my head. Uh, do you think I got them right? Do you think that I missed any? Thankfully, I did not miss Spirited Away because that would have been a travesty. So the next episode uh, is actually a listener choice and it will come as no surprise to anyone on Twitter who took part because it's a horror-based listener choice and horror is not my favourite genre. I really like horror-adjacent stuff it's one of those really weird situations where I don't like horror. Like, I don't like out-and-out out horror, but I really like horror comedy and sci-fi horror and clearly fantasy horror, obviously, but I'm not the biggest fan of the horror genre. But in the spirit and kind of ghoulishness of Halloween, I posted four choices from each decade on Twitter and I asked the Twitter followers to choose between the 1970s, which was Halloween, the 1980s, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1990s, Scream, and the 2000s, Drag Me to Hell. And Twitter users chose Scream. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, uh, I can't say I'm incredibly excited to watch Scream. I've heard things about it. I've heard it's genre-defining, so I'm interested from that point of view. I just really don't like scary movies. Um, but... I'm going to put my big girl pants on and I'm going to watch Scream. Um, but because I'm taking a break week next week, because break weeks is something that I'm going to be doing uh, every so often now to just have a week to kind of chill out because I don't know if you know, <laughs> I'm quite busy and I do a lot of stuff. Um, so because I'm on a break week next week, Scream will actually be out in two weeks so I'll be having a break week next week and then following on from that will be Scream. So yeah, join me for Scream. <laughs> oh, I really hope I enjoy it. I, I really hope I do. Uh, it's not often that I put it up for a listener choice and I have to have faith in my listeners that they would not make me watch something that's really, really awful. Um, I'm sure Scream is absolutely fine. Um, I'm sure I'm sure I'll enjoy it. And regardless of whether I enjoy it or not, Scream has definitely got a, a very interesting history and legacy. So because obviously Wes Craven. So uh, from that point of view, I'm very excited to cover Scream. Um, I just hope I enjoy the movie. Um, you can follow me if you wish. Obviously, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can sign up to support the show financially if you wish, but you're under no obligation to do so. Uh, it's patreon.com slash diorama. So the tiers start at $2 a month or £2 a month because it kind of depends on where you are now. Um, and you obviously get access to perks. I'm actually looking into ways to give my patrons even more perks. But to do that, I would like to have some more patrons. So I'm actually looking for a further eight patrons to sign up to get my patron number up to 20. So if you would like to support the show, um, please sign up on Patreon. And a massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast. Uh, to Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike and Griff. They actually warned me about my other mother, but I didn't listen, so more fool me. You can check out my new merch store, which is at teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. You can buy a wide variety of merch. Obviously, all purchases help to support the future of this podcast because all of the money that I make from the Patreon and from any merch sales 
just basically goes back into making this podcast really, really great. But again, you're under no obligation to do that either. If you want to get in touch with me, if you want to give me some feedback or you want to suggest something or you just want to say hi, because, you know, people can say hi to me whenever they want. You can obviously send me a DM on something like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, if you wish. You can also email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Uh, or you can send me a message from my website, verbaldiorama.com. Um, and obviously, I write for film stories. I write a couple of things for their website, and I also write for the magazine. The magazine recently got full funding over on Kickstarter, which is amazing. So that really secures the future of the magazines, which is just incredible. Uh, and it basically <laughs> means that hopefully I can continue to write for the magazine. So um, I've actually just submitted my 10th column for Film Stories magazine. Um, and I am actually going to be writing uh, another little article for the magazine, which I'm really, really, really excited about because it's something that I mention a lot on this podcast and I say that I love it and I'm really excited to be writing about it. Obviously, support film stories, everyone. <laughs> but And if you have supported film stories, if you have contributed to the Kickstarter, thank you so much because literally film stories... I keep saying it's changed my life. It's given me so much confidence in my abilities that I didn't have. Um, and if you help to support that by buying a magazine or clicking a link on filmstories.co.uk, that obviously helped me. So thank you so much. Um, and finally, be careful what you wish for. The grass isn't always greener on the other side. Be thankful for what you do have and accept that life sometimes isn't roses. And that's okay. But most of all, if a tiny door appears in your house randomly, don't go through it. Bye. Movie